morning, guys. How are we doing? That was awfully nice of you. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but I think you already heard that, so you're probably there. Um, again, if you don't know me, if this is your first time here, my name is Arch. I get to serve on staff in young adults ministry, as well as as a equipping evangelist to help equip the saints for the work of ministry, specifically in uh, heralding the gospel. We're in our mission statement series, and we're concluding it this morning. We're to live on mission. So let's read this passage together in 1 Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Well, let me ask you a question as we start. Have you ever had an identity crisis? Here's the reality. You either have or you're in one right now, okay? I just wanna narrow the focus for you. The reality is you probably had more than one identity crisis. Um, I can attest to this personally. You know, the reality is that we all, all human beings, are going through a perpetual state of identity crisis until we find our identity in Christ. Until that day, we're lost. Um, I put my identity in when I was in high school in my performance on a football field as an athlete, I put my identity as, uh, or in the number of scholastic art awards that I worked really hard to try to achieve as an artist. I put my identity in the approval of my fraternity brothers in college and for the attention of the sorority sisters. Then after college, I thought, well, maybe my identity is in my vocation. Maybe who I am is what I do for a living. Maybe it's my career. So you better find the right one because you don't live forever, right? Sort of. And so I'm like, man, I, gotta, I just got to find the perfect job. And then I'll be settled. But we know that's not true. And so I went from identity crisis to identity crisis to identity crisis, never satisfied. And it was worse than that. It brought me to a place that I was so confused and so distressed, ashamed of my sin as well along the way, that I wanted to take my own life. I didn't want to have an identity at all. I wanted out. Thankfully, by God's grace, I'm here. He led me in desperation to buy a Bible while I was living in Roanoke, Virginia. And I began to read it. You know, it was amazing. I was a professing Christian for years didn't really read the Bible. But I started reading and I started to understand the gospel message for the first time in a new way. And I repented of my sin. I put my faith in Christ because I saw the kindness of God towards a sinner like me. I finally found my identity in him and it changed everything. I became a child of God. I wasn't even interested in vocational ministry. I was like, I can do whatever now. It doesn't matter. I'm a beloved child of God now, I'm set free. I hope you found that freedom. The world around us is going through an identity crisis right now. People are mistakenly identifying themselves in a number of ways. They are desperately trying to find their identity in a number of things outside of Christ. 
And that should break our hearts as believers. And if we have any compassion for our neighbor, we would say something to them, specifically the gospel. There's also, alongside this identity crisis in the world, there's a moral revolution taking place. I don't know if you're aware of this, but we call it the immoral revolution taking place at the Macintosh House. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we live in a society that is attempting to redefine sex, marriage, and what is considered right and wrong. Albert Moeller said that we dare not underestimate the scale, scope, or significance of this moral revolution. But then he says this, even more urgently, we cannot underestimate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only solution to the problems in our world. He continues by saying that the church cannot abdicate its responsibility for Christian truth-telling in a postmodern age that doesn't believe in absolute truth. The choice before the church is clear. We will either ground this generation in the grandeur and glory of all that biblical Christianity represents, or we will continue to see the roster of the missing in action grow to even more tragic proportions. Seen in this light, Albert Moeller says the challenge of the sexual revolution serves as a catalyst to call the church to wake up from a moral slumber and into a life of bold Christian witness and faithful living. And so this is what we gotta do. We gotta stop complaining about the brokenness and the evils of this world, and we've gotta start proclaiming the goodness of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? We got to. I'm guilty of it too, man. We get crustier the older and older we get, isn't it? I'm like, I'm, I'm just too you know, salty for, for this kind of age that I'm in right now, but it's true, we gotta stop complaining, we gotta start proclaiming, we have to shine a light in this darkness in which we live. And the, the identity crisis coincides with the moral revolution and it should not shock us because these things are linked, right? I mean, who we are, or at least who we think we are and whose we are, meaning who we think we belong to, it affects how we live and it affects what we do, doesn't it? So before we, as a church, we begin to get all high and mighty and be like, man, the, the world is lost. It is wicked. They're so confused. We've got to deal with our own identity crisis within this community. And I mean the church at large. I'm not calling you out as an individual. I'm saying the American church has got to repent of the sin of omission. What do I mean? I mean the sin of omission to neglect, to intentionally and obediently evangelize lost people who don't know who God is. They don't know who they are. And therefore, they don't know how to live in the world. We've got to repent. The evident of our identity crisis is a lack of zeal for the lost people that are all around us. They're confused. And I really believe that the apathy that we have, the neglect at times as a Christian community, as a whole in this mission, our mission, no one's gonna do it for us, is, is either rooted in an ignorance of who we are, like we, we don't understand who we are in Christ, or 
It's in a forgetfulness of who we are and who we belong to and how we are to live that our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, has called us to go and make disciples of all nations, starting where we are, going to the unreached peoples of the world. This morning, I'm going to be unpacking the shortest passage of the scriptures I've ever preached, but it is jam-packed with goodness. It's going to challenge us, but it is going to encourage our souls big time. It has been transformative for my heart this week, guys. It has the power, what the Lord has to say through this text has the power to save souls. It has the power to set straight the path of believers who've wandered off the path of their mission. And it has the power to equip us to fulfill the mission. Are you encouraged? Because if it just left to say, go do it, you know, get out there but never told us how we'd be lost ourselves, wouldn't we? But this equips us to share the gospel through our testimony. So let's take a closer look. Point one, we belong to God. We are a people for his own possession. What does that mean? Well, we belong to God, all people, everyone in this room belongs to God in a general sense. God the creator created us creatures in his own image. Isn't that amazing? All of us are made in the image of God. Um, to, to paint the picture for you, I've got an analogy of an artist and a painting, right? So an artist paints a self-portrait. The self-portrait is not the artist, but it looks like him, doesn't it? This generation is like the self-portrait of God that thinks it's abstract artwork. So it's defining itself in these abstract, confusing ways when it's actually more concrete. It's a self-portrait. It's trying to decide who it is, but the artist owns it. The artist decides what wall it goes on and what exhibit it lives in. This generation is trying to find their identity and purpose outside of Christ. A painting doesn't exist for its own glory, but for the glory of the painter. You can't escape God's signature. He's written on you and on me. This generation is like clay trying to mold the potter into the shape that the clay prefers. I, see, I want a God that is either indifferent towards my sin or approving of my sin. This generation has simply broken the first and second commandments. Thou shall have no other gods before me, and thou shall not create an idol. This generation is, it gets dogged on quite often, but it's really no different than past generations in this sense, that there is a part of us before we come into Christ where we desire to be our own God. And we desire to create a God that fits our preferences, don't we? So we still do sometimes, don't we, friends? If we're honest, it's tempting to be God and master and Lord of our own life. But here's the reality. No one in this room is autonomous. We all are gonna have to answer to the God who made us on judgment day for how we lived. You can, you can seek out answers everywhere about who you are and what your purpose is. And, and you know what? The world will provide thousands of answers for you. None of them are sufficient. 
and you'll always be disappointed. Identity crisis after identity crisis after identity crisis. We were meant to reflect the image and glory of God. We were meant to reflect his character in this world. We've all failed, we've fallen short, just like our parents before us, Adam and Eve. And therefore, in light of the fall of mankind, we're all sinners. And although we belong to God in this general sense as creatures made in his image, there's a more specific way in which not all people belong to God. Not all people are children of God. I know, I say that, and right away it's like, hold on, pump the brakes, Archibald, come on now. But it's true, and, and I wanna show you the scriptures. This is not my opinion. Ephesians 2, one through three reads this. Before you found your identity in Christ, you put your hope in him. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. That's the evidence of our spiritual deadness and depravity. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the, here it is, sons of disobedience, identity marker, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and here it is, were by nature, naturally born physically into the world, alive, but spiritually dead in our sin, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, so everyone enters into the world, children destined for God's wrath until something changes. Our GPS is set south, okay? We need it redirected. And, and what does that? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Receiving that message, believing in him, in the Savior's righteousness, not in self-righteousness. We are not good, only God's good. We must repent and believe that. And he's been good to us. He sent us Christ. I love this interaction between the Pharisees. They thought they were good, man. And you know what? The people thought they were pretty good too. They're the most religious folk of the time when Jesus was walking the earth. And they told Jesus, they said, Abraham is our father. This is John 8, verse 39. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth. It's hard truth. Who, who wants to be called a sinner, right? This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. We're gonna find out who their father is in a second, but let's call a timeout. Before we do that, let's go back. They think that they are, that Abraham is their father. What are they saying when they say that? God chose Abraham to give him a family, right? But that Abraham would be in God's family. And so when they say Abraham is our father, they're saying God is our father. We are children of God. Jesus is saying, no, you're not. They said to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. There it is. Jesus said to them, if God was your father, you would love me. This is the fruit, this is the evidence of someone who is not a child of wrath, but a child of God. They have new affections for Jesus because they've seen his love displayed on a cross for them. 
And then he says, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? And then he answers his own question. He says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Jesus said some hard things. Tell me you wouldn't cringe at this if you're a Pharisee, right? Thinking you're a child of God all your life only to be told, no, you're not. And you need to repent and put your faith in me, the only son of God. Jesus gets real in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He wanted to break up the marriage of Adam and Eve. He wanted to cast them out of the garden so that they would die. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. These, if they were wanting to kill Jesus, the Pharisees hated Jesus for what he was saying. They are of their father. They're imitating their father, the devil. That's why this passage is why it is untrue to say to someone, the truest thing about you is you're a child of God. If they have not put their faith in the only son of God, they are not a son or a daughter of God. So if you say something like this prematurely, if this is how you share the gospel, and I'm not assuming it is, but I'm saying if it is, you're not preaching the gospel of salvation to them, you are condemning them to hell with your words. You are keeping them in ignorance from the truth of the offensiveness of their sin against a holy God. And more importantly, you're keeping them from the truth of the beauty of the grace and mercy of God for sinners, a free gift offered in Christ. So you can't understand grace apart from justice. What we deserved was death. What God offers us is life in his son. If we speak like this, we're belittling Christ's sacrifice on the cross. When you say to a lost person, God loves you as you are and has a wonderful plan for your life, you're a child of God, you're lying to them like the devil. I don't know how else to put it, Jesus said that. You aren't telling them the truth, that they must come to Christ as they are, riddled with sin, full of guilt and shame. Come as you are, Jesus says. Come to me right now. Don't go home and clean yourself up, get yourself all fixed up, and then come to me. Come now. And in all your filth and the dirtiness and the darkness of your past and all of it, I will cleanse you. Let me wash you off. Let me forgive you of your sin. Let me give you my righteousness in exchange for your unrighteousness and let me give you the right to become a child of God. It's a privilege to get to have that name and we don't earn it. It's a gift that we receive through faith. But don't take my word for it. Look at John chapter one. It says that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The, made was, the world was made through Jesus, yet the world did not know him. See, it didn't recognize Jesus as creator or as Christ, its savior. He came to his own, to the Jews, to the Pharisees, and his own people. They did not receive him. They did not believe in him. Pride kept them from it. But here's verse 12. Here's the good news. But to all... You know what the original language, you know what that word, all, that's what it means. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
Jesus gave the right to become a child of God, children of God. So in light of redemption, anybody, look at me, I don't care how dark your past is, I don't even have to know what you've done to know this, any who come to him in repentance and faith as they are will be given the right to become a child of God and they'll be in the hand of God and nothing can ever take them out of the hand of the Father. This is significant. This is special. This is miraculous. 1 John 3, 1 says, see it. Do you see the miracle? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, the church, should be called something, children of God, and so we are. It's hard to believe sometimes. Have you considered the cost of your redemption recently? The word possession, that we are a people of his own possession, in the original language, it literally means to purchase or to acquire at a cost. Jesus paid it all. Like the scriptures say, he lavished his love on us. He did not hold anything back. He didn't suffer for a little bit. He loved us to death on the cross to purchase us for the wage of sin was death. He didn't pay with cash or card. He didn't pay with silver or gold. He paid with his precious blood that flowed through his sinless veins. He bought us at a cost. Not in a store, but on a wooden cross on Calvary's hill, not fully clothed, but naked and bare. He bore our sin and our shame and suffered on the cross that we could move from being children of wrath, enemies of God, to beloved children of God, whom he treasures, values. Can I just urge us all to examine ourselves today? Ask yourself the question, who do I belong to? I've gotten to wrestle with that all week. Are you sitting on the throne of God as God of your own life, trying to build your own kingdom on earth, or are you seeking to advance his kingdom, build his kingdom on earth? Have you put aside God's word over time and drifted into conjuring up a God of your own imagination that fits your preferences, that's okay with the sin that presently clings close? You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. The scripture says in Romans 10, 9, that if you sincerely confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, okay. be saved. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus recently? Because many people want the saving benefits of Jesus Christ without surrendering their life to Jesus. That includes all of you. All, I mean, all of you, all of your possessions, when you become his, his possession, they're his, they belong to him. So we're to leverage our time, our money, our resources, our gifts, all to be handed over to Jesus, the Lord, us in him and him in us. Many people want the saving benefits of Christ without ever submitting to Christ, yet Jesus said, you must deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. He didn't say you must die on the cross to pay for your sins. I'll do the heavy lifting. 
pick up your cross and follow me. And it is a narrow path. And that includes submitting to his will in every area of our lives, not just the select few, right? Christianity is not like you're walking through a buffet and going, hmm, that command? Yeah, we'll add that to the plate. That one, you know, he'll understand. Many people want the saving benefits of Christ without ever suffering for the sake of the gospel. Though Christ endured great suffering and discomfort on our cross, we don't wanna get uncomfortable to speak of his cross. But we should let the love of Christ in the gospel, see him on that cross and let that give us the endurance to suffer rejection, mockery, persecution, and the coming martyrdom, if necessary, for our Redeemer, the one who paid it all. If you're in Christ, you belong to God. Everything that once belonged to you belongs to him. And he's entrusted us with a message of reconciliation, good news that we need to take to those who are not yet in him, do not have their identity in him. And how do we do that? By proclaiming his excellencies. This is point two, look at the text. We're a people for his own possession. Here's the purpose statement, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Well, what does it mean to proclaim? I wanted to emphasize this because the original word proclaim, it literally means to declare, to tell, to publish, to make known, to proclaim and celebrate. It is joyful, it is worshipful, it is verbal. So there's no way around this word proclaim. We have to use our mouths to share the gospel. So you might ask, you might come across this text and go, well, isn't proclamation just for preachers? No, it's not. Because Peter didn't write 1 Peter to just preachers. He wrote it to Christians. He wrote it to the church. And the, if that was true, the identity markers, the four aspects of our identity that we've seen leading up to this wouldn't be true for you, right? It'd just be true for pastors and preachers. But the, it is true for you. It's a privilege that we get to proclaim the excellencies of God. Jesus sent out 72 to proclaim the gospel of God. Now that's not prescriptive, but it is descriptive and it is helpful that we too as a church, we should be disciplined to be evangelizing the people that God has put around us specifically. Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We've got to be preaching the gospel. You can't befriend someone into the kingdom of God. I'm tired of hearing about friendship evangelism. It's, it's not a reality. Now you should love your neighbor as yourself. You should live a holy life, love them sacrificially. That is the foundation, right? It's a starting point. That'll set you apart from the way that they experience love, from the holiness and the unholiness of the world around them, but it cannot set them apart 
It cannot make them holy. It's not relational osmosis that brings someone into the kingdom of God out of the domain of darkness. No, you have to live a certain way and speak a certain way if you want to see people change the way of the GPS. You following me? Metzger wrote in his book, Tell the Truth, he said that the Christian witness is like an airplane. It has two wings, our life and our lips. An airplane with one wing, we know what happens, it goes down, right? Crash and burn. An airplane with no wings is not an airplane, it's a submarine. It's at the bottom of the ocean. It hasn't even taken flight. And I'm, I'm afraid that too many Christians, they, they go their entire life with ever getting off the ground. And, and this text actually equips us to get off the ground in a couple weeks, we're gonna be here on Saturday, September the 18th, to be equipped to get off the ground. And we'll go out in fear and trembling and proclaim the gospel. We're proclaiming the excellencies of God. The excellencies of God are both his attributes and his actions. What do I mean by that? We're to proclaim the goodness of God. I love what David says in Psalm 27, four. He says one thing, one, just one, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek, here it is, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, to look at God in the scriptures and go, whoa, you are excellent in every way. We saw some of the attributes of God as we walked through the Psalms this summer. You can continue to see the attributes of God all throughout the scriptures. He's holy, he's just, he's good, he's unchanging, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's all-knowing, he's all-seeing, he is all-present, he is the almighty God. What is there not to talk about, right? It's amazing. We've got to do something as the people of God We've got to start publicizing and proclaiming his excellencies. We've got to get out of our prayer closets and our prayer journals and take it out into the world and publicize the goodness of God. It can't dead end here. It's got to start here, but it can't stop here. And that we should go into where we where we live and work and play, our office places, our neighborhoods our playgrounds, our soccer fields, on the sidelines. Let's take it onto social media until they kick us off. It's coming. It's kind of happening a little bit. I mean, our social media posts, guys, they are, they are I'm not trying to call anybody out. I'm, I'm saying the Lord's trying to call you out here. They are publicizing what is the most important thing and newsworthy thing that you think people need to hear. Even if it's a little uncomfortable at first, we've got to start proclaiming the excellencies of God. We've got to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if it costs us something. Um, I never get my hair cut by the same person. And it's because I'm ADD and I never schedule something. I just whip into great clips like last second and I'm like, please, this is a mess. Some of you have seen it at times, it gets bushy. It's just a mess. But you know what? It's amazing because I get to talk to someone different every time and uh, and I'll ask them, I'll, you know, they love to talk. I'll say, what you been watching recently? Anything good? What you been reading? Anything worthy of talking about? 
oh yeah, I've been binging this series or I've been reading this amazing book, this trilogy, cool. And then what do you think they ask? How about you? Jackpot, we're in baby. <laughs> that is a green light. Oh, let me tell you, this is changing my life. Let me tell you about the excellencies of God. So it's about his attributes, but it's also about his actions. It's about the, the things that we see that he's done in the past. It's the things that he's doing in the present in our own lives by the Spirit. But most climactically, it's what he's done by sending Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of our sin to make us children of God. It's so good. And we've got to proclaim the gospel through our testimony. And Peter equips us right here to do just that. A people for his own possession. We belong to God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. How? Who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here is our corporate testimony as a church. Peter is literally equipping us to share our testimony, not testimonies. I, I say testimony very intentionally because although our testimonies are they have minor differences in the details. The major components are these. God called us out, out of something. He called us out of darkness, and he called us into something, into his marvelous light. Those are the three components of your testimony and mine if you're in Christ. For some of you, he might be calling you out today into his marvelous light because of his love for you and his kindness. Sometimes we glorify testimonies one against another. Oh man, it's crazy that God would save somebody like this. Uh, the seven-year-old and the 17-year-old are both spiritually dead. A miracle took place. God called them out. No different than Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. A dead man walks out of the tomb. Somebody once said, if Jesus had just said, come out, we'd have zombies walking all over the place, right? All the dead would rise if he had said that, but he called him by name. And he must call you by name. Even if you're born into a Christian family, you must be born again in Christ. And I love that the word called, that God called us, it literally is verbal. It's an invitation to come to Jesus as you are, to be cleansed by him, forgiven by him, and given the right to become a child of God. And what's interesting is that same word called in the original language, it means to be given a name. How amazing is that? It's a new name. You're called out from being a child of wrath. You're now called a child of God. That's beautiful. There's an external call when an imperfect preacher or proclaimer like you and I shares the gospel with someone. It's audibly heard, but unless there's an internal call, unless God speaks through that and he's calling you, he's speaking to your soul and he's saying, come to me. Today is the day that those people will not be saved. And so we're reliant upon that internal call. I pray that if you came into through those doors before and you did not have that call, I pray that God would use this morning in the gospel to do just that and that you'd hear Jesus say, come to me. Today's the day. The author of Hebrews says this, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts 
Put aside your pride, humble yourself, and come to him. Be clothed in something new, his righteousness. What does it mean to be called out of darkness into his marvelous light? Well, darkness and light, they're common. it's a common metaphor in the New Testament. R.C. Sproul once said that darkness is our natural habitat. In our fallen condition, we feared more than anything that a spotlight would be shined on our souls and that our sins would be manifest to the world. We don't wanna be exposed. But the beauty of the gospel is it doesn't just expose us for who we really are as sinners, but it clothes us in light. We're given his righteousness when we repent and believe in Christ. Jesus says this in John 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, that's Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. I, I was discipling uh, this high school student, Joe Navarro, years ago, and he, he struggled in high school at times because he's like, man, I never get invited to parties, like any parties. And I just, I feel so rejected through that. And I said, Joe, you know why you don't get invited to parties? He was chasing after Jesus Christ. He wanted to honor Jesus with his life. His life. They didn't want to bring a candle into that dark room. So there's teenagers in the room that are like, man, I, I don't ever get invited to these things. Rejoice. You belong to the king. They don't want the light and the darkness. Verse 20 says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. They don't come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But here's what's amazing in verse 21. But whoever does what is true, who comes to the light, who comes to Jesus so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, that they will be saved. They hear the gospel they acknowledge the fact that they're a sinner. They know they need mercy, and they go, I'm coming. I heard the call, I need that, and good, good news is, Jesus is in rich supply of mercy, and he is willing. The gospel call, when it goes out of your mouths, in that proclamation, it affects the mind of hearers, it affects the heart of hearers, it affects the will of hearers. How does it affect the mind? It brings people from ignorance of the gospel message, spiritual blindness, that they're deaf to an awareness. They now see it. They treasure Jesus now. They can see him now rightly, their savior. They can hear it and it's a sweet, sweet sound. It's a song, come to me as you are. I'll clean you, I'll give you a new name, totally forgiven. No one can snatch you out of my hand forever. It affects our hearts emotionally. Again, we loved the darkness, but when we hear and understand the gospel, we now love the light. Jesus becomes our ultimate treasure. Like, he's more precious to us than the sins which we once loved. He's more precious to us than anything that the world could offer on a silver platter and say, take this instead. No, I choose Jesus. He's better. It affects our will, the, the way we spend our time, what we actively do, sin and disobey God, to, to try to find some fleeting pleasure or some sense of power in our own lives. 
We once actively walked in disobedience, but now we seek to follow Jesus, not just out of, I've got to do this, but out of, I want to do, I want to do it. He's so good to me. He's so loving and kind to me. He's gentle. Even when we stumble and fall at times along the way, it's gonna happen. Our sanctification is a long, hard road, right? But it's like the stock market that goes straight up to that right-hand corner, hopefully. But that's, you can be sure of the sanctification that it moves that way. We start at ground zero and God says, I'm gonna make you holy and then I'm gonna make you holy over time, practically in your day-to-day life. You think you love me now? I'm gonna show you my excellencies where you will grow in love for me that by the time you reach your deathbed, you will be so much more amazed and blown away at my love for you than you were when you first got saved. When the gospel call goes out and we respond and we come out of darkness and into his marvelous light, it affects the consequences of our life. When we were in darkness, we were spiritually dead and destined for destruction. But now we've become a child of God and we're given new life, hope of eternal life. And Christians, God hasn't just called us into this light. He calls us the light of the world to shine our light into the darkness of this present world. I love what Psalm 107 says, and we'll close with this. Psalm 107, one and two says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Again, we belong to him. We're a child of God now and we should thank him for that and be grateful for that new identity. Verse two, let the redeemed, let the people of his own possession say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, so that those who are unredeemed can be redeemed and say so. Amen? Let's say so. Whom he has redeemed from trouble. Boy, were we in trouble, and now are we in good graces with a good God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.